We're jumping back into Romans, our last teaching um, on this series. It's been about 13 weeks or so. And uh, we started out with this premise. The premise we started out with is this is a letter. And it's a letter from Paul to some house churches in Rome. And functionally, it was meant for them. And that's just what Paul was doing. He was writing a letter to some people he loved in Rome. Which means functionally, it wasn't meant for you and me. Some of you are like, but wait a second, it's in the Bible. Yes, I know. But think about it. When he first wrote the letter, he wasn't thinking, you know what, one day, this is going to be scriptural canon. People are going to, you know, he didn't, he wasn't thinking that. He just had love for this house church. And because of that, we get to read the mail, but we need to read the mail in context. Now, it's become part of our church tradition and church history throughout, you know, because it's now with us as what we know as the New Testament. And since the 16th century, uh, and the printing press, and kind of after the Enlightenment, and now you throw in Western individualism, we read Romans, this letter, with certain lenses, with certain glasses on. And for some, it's been, it's become kind of a system, like a systematic theology. It's been kind of like a we talked about this a little bit where you can hop and skip through Romans, different verses to kind of come up with some sort of a meaning. And uh, I just don't think that that's what Paul meant. He didn't mean it to be a formula for individual salvation. I think there's some beautiful things in there about our salvation, but it wasn't meant to be a formula. It wasn't meant to be a whole bunch of doctrine. It was Paul helping out five churches, five house churches, who were struggling to live together in unity after Claudius kicked out all the Jewish Christians and then Nero, five years later, let them all back in. And they're like, okay, how do we do this? How do we do this church family thing? Now, we learned about Paul. I'm just doing a little quick recap here. So if you've not been a part of it, you're welcome to jump back on and catch up. But we talked about Paul and kind of his life and who he was and what he was excited about. We talked about what Rome was like at the time that the letter was written and all the different ways you could worship. We learned about Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila. We learned about these, what these house churches were like and how they were like a mixture of Jewish Uh, Christians and Gentile Christians and some people who were still in some sort of a slave structure in Rome and some people who were actually higher status in Rome. And we learned that there was two major factions, what Paul calls the weak and the strong. In the weak were the, the, the Jewish Christians who still, they felt like they were God's chosen people. And they were, that they were a special group of people because they were still practicing kind of the central tenets of the law, which were circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath keeping. 
So they felt really, really kind of like the spotlight of God was on them. And they had this real, what Paul calls zeal, and this zealotry in them that they felt like they were being kind of pushed on a little bit by the Roman Empire. So you know what they decided to do? They decided to band together and not pay their taxes. And this is all throughout Romans 13, which we translate as American Christians about this silly thing about the government. But they were really taking their, their kind of zealot, their Jewish zealotry serious, and they're like, we're not going to pay our taxes, which was bringing heat on the whole church, even the Gentiles. And then there was the Gentile Christians, who Paul calls the strong, who were not interested in um, adding practices of the Jewish law to their life. They didn't feel like it was necessary. And so there was just friction and tension. And we learned that both these groups were really, really frustrated with each other. And as a result of their frustration and their disunity, they were missing out on experiencing the peace of God in the midst of Roman Empire, like in the center of the Roman Empire universe, Rome itself. And I made the claim early on in the teachings was that Rome, uh, Romans is not a letter primarily about your personal salvation. It is not first and foremost a schema of how you go to heaven when you die. It includes salvation. It includes healing. It includes faith and obedience. But its overarching theme is about living as a community, as a family in the midst of empire, in the midst of the heavy kind of burden of the Roman Empire. And last week's reading, I think, was really special. If you missed last week, we did something really different. And we read all of Romans 5 through chapter 8 out loud. And our four readers did a great job. So if you missed that, it was, it was really, really powerful. I, in fact, I walked up a little choked up. And so we've been doing this kind of as a survey, like a little bit of an overview of the letter. So some of you are used to something, and we do this sometimes too, which is called expository preaching, which is a big nerdy way of saying we go verse by verse and word by word. We didn't do that here. Um, not apologizing, I'm just saying that's not what we did. We just kind of did a more of a survey of the letter. And today is the finale and the hard part with any finale is there's so much still to say, and we're going to spend all of our time in Romans chapter 8, which scholars throughout history have called Paul's magnum opus, like the best of, they think Romans is his best letter, and they think this chapter is his greatest chapter. Now, I mean, people can agree to disagree. I think it's awesome, you know, but it's, I'm not going to do it justice talking about it for the next 10 minutes. Just so get over that. But I would encourage you to do like one of our 10-man table groups um, that meet um, each week. They spent four weeks reading this letter out loud together. And it sounded like it was like building and beautiful each time. So I would encourage you, spend some time in this chapter 
Because what happens between chapters 5 and 7 is Paul laying out something that's really, really basic to the, the faith. And that is because of Adam, all of humanity has been kind of set on a certain course. And that course, think of it like a railroad track. It's tough to get off a railroad track. And you're just set on a certain course. And then Paul talks about, but, but with, because of Christ, there's a separate track. And because of what Christ has done, we get to jump tracks. We get to jump the line. And it starts off basically in chapter 8, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The chapter starts off, and now you've got to remember, Paul didn't write this with chapters and verses. So I'm just I'm doing something that's a little different. He wrote it as just one letter. But the beginning of this part of this conversation, it starts with there's no condemnation. At the end of it, it says there's no separation. We'll get to that here in a second. But in some ways, I think he's talking to some of the Jewish people right now. There's no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ. He's talking to all of them, but he's talking about the spirit of the law versus the spirit of Christ. He says, for you, Jewish Christians, you jumped the line. Because of Christ, you jumped the line. You tried the law, but it was only taking you to one conclusion. And now you've jumped the line. And then a little later on in verse 14, he's kind of saying something that kind of appeals to some of the Roman Christians. He says that you were orphaned. Listen to this. For those of you who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. Remember Roman structure there was just a hierarchy and everybody fits somewhere in the structure of slavery so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought you, brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is a beautiful picture that the, especially the Roman Christians would understand, and that's adoption. And adoption in Roman society was very, very powerful. It was incredibly powerful. Because in Roman adoption... It was by decision of the father of the household in their, their way of doing Roman law and family structure, the father had all the say. And in Roman society, if you had uh, a girl, um, boys, the lineage of the boys, the males in the household was really good for you. But to have a girl, you just sometimes you didn't want too many of them. I mean, yeah, but it's just one of those things where it was like the father could decide if an infant was kept or not. And if there was disformity or if there was something wrong with the infant, the father could say, nope. 
And there was infanticide rampant throughout the Roman world. And fathers had just had a lot of power. Now, as a father, you could also, you not only had slaves, you had heirs, you had your own sons and daughters, but you had slaves and you had patrons and you had, uh, sorry, you had clients working for you and you had all this structure. Remember, we talked about that whole idea, you know, of a pyramid scheme, right? In Roman society, it was all pyramid schemes that fit into a giant pyramid and at the top of the pyramid was Caesar, was the emperor, and so everything fit, you fit somewhere on the ladder. And so for fathers, this was a big deal. Because if you adopted somebody into your family, listen, Roman law let you disown your own children. If your own children disappointed you or didn't live up to the standards that you wanted, you could cut them off. Legally, economically, you could just let them go. They dishonored. They brought shame to the family. You could just let them go. But you couldn't do that with an adopted kid. Once you were adopted under Roman law, there was no going back. If you made the decision as a father to adopt a son or a daughter under Roman law, they became equal heirs to whatever you had as a family. This is what Paul is talking about. And it's like a beautiful picture of what God has done. That This is how they would see it. There's no going back that God chose you, that God brought you into his family, and there is no going back. You are equal heirs. You're a family. And then... There's this beautiful picture all throughout Romans 8 about the Spirit. Paul uses, the Greek word for Spirit is pneuma. Paul uses it 22 times in 39 verses. So when you're talking about what's the theme of Romans 8, (laughs) this is a good guess. When, when, when someone uses the same word over and over and over, you might want to pick up on the hint. The spirit in Romans 8 is this culmination of, of what it looks like to be in community. So quick three points. The first one is this. The spirit lives in us. The spirit lives in us. If you have... have in a sense, surrendered your life and your allegiance and your faith and your trust into Jesus and his death and resurrection. What happens is the Spirit is now available and living in us. Now, I'm going to read a verse and we're going to explain this. Verse 11. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now, we tend to think that for the early followers of Jesus, the people that Paul is writing this letter to, that this was just easy, this was an easy concept to grasp and it was an easy thing for them to experience and feel in their life. 
And that would be a false assumption. And I think the majority of us in this room have a hard time. We, we know this because the scriptures tell us about the spirit, but a lot of us have had a hard time experiencing the reality of the presence of God in our lives. And I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I know that this is your experience because it's my experience. I mean, think about what, what the Jewish readers, uh, hearers of this, this were, were experiencing in their own spirit. Like the, the spirit of God, Yahweh, comes in their history, only comes upon kings and prophets. Like if you read the Old Testament when it says the spirit of God came upon David, or the spirit of the Lord came upon Samuel, the spirit of the Lord didn't come on everybody. And so for the Jewish hearer, this is really hard for them to experience. Their mindset is tabernacles, holy of holies. Uh, you would send the high priest into the holy of holies. He would be wearing bells. And you would have a chain wrapped around his, his ankle so that if he died in the holy of holies, if somehow he displeased God, they could pull him back out. I mean, this is the intensity of what the Jewish understanding of how God worked was. Then you have the Ark of the Covenant. You have all these things that were just like, just in their mind's eye were just heavy, the presence of God. Now, the prophet Joel said that one day that the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, would, would, would rest on his people all his people. So they had this kind of like sense in which this might happen. And then Jesus talks about to, you know, in, in, in one of the gospels and actually a few of the gospels that he would send his spirit to tabernacle within us. But it's hard for us to get our heads around it. And then think about it. If you're a Greek Christian, and your whole understanding of how gods operate <laughs> is that gods are in the temples, that gods are, the, the Greek gods operated outside of us as human beings. Sometimes they were for us. Sometimes they were against us. And now what Paul is saying is the power of the creator God, the God of all gods, lives in you? I don't know about you, but I just don't sense that the people were like, yeah, of course. I think that they needed to be reminded, and I think that you and I need to be reminded and it's really hard for us to experience, especially now. Think about this. Western individual data, we have like all this information overload. We have digital just in our heads all the time. A lot of us don't have a moment to breathe in silence, let alone to think about and contemplate God's presence in our lives. But this is what Paul is trying to break them break them into experiencing again. The Holy Spirit, and according to one scholar I read this week, is the great hinge in Scripture. 
that God's movement through his people, through us as individuals, is, is the Holy Spirit doing work. And a lot of times when you look at scripture, when we think about like we are people who have lost our way, we've been exiled and orphaned, and now we've been adopted and brought back. And if you hear people's stories when they talk about their life and how God has been transforming them, there's always a hinge point. And it always is the Spirit doing the hinging. And because of the Spirit doing things in our lives, we no longer live by and for ourselves. And you are, according to Romans 8, you are the place where the Spirit of God dwells. That is just staggering to think about. And as it turns out, the Holy Spirit wants to birth beauty in me and in you that we cannot birth on ourselves that we cannot conjure up and, and, and you know, work on and self-help ourselves. That the Holy Spirit wants to do that in you. And if that is true, man, that changes everything. It really changes everything. That God loves you. And here's the thing. God loves you and God did not die for you in Jesus and forgive you to keep you at a distance because you're kind of still a sinner and you mess up sometimes. <laughs> like Paul said in the previous chapter, and if you missed previous chapter, you got to read it. Like you still mess up sometimes, you still screw up sometimes, you still have this thing in you that's still kind of like hitching back to that track, that Adam track. And, the, and God doesn't like forgive you, but then just keep you, okay, you're forgiven, you're adopted, but live in this little, little shack outside, like a dog kennel. <laughs> Out, that's not how God sees you and me. And perhaps we've been missing a bit on this. Perhaps it's really true that the suburban trinity is a lot of thought of as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures or the Bible, and we've missed how the Spirit does this work in us. Second point is this, that the Spirit gives us power to overcome. Power from outside of our own abilities to overcome. Verse 12 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, the spirit you, but, by, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul talks about the power of the Spirit that lives in us is actually the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And therefore, has given us the ability, the power to break patterns in our lives. To kill things that are killing us. And one of the, I think Paul has in mind, especially with this church, is, hey, there's real division and there's real animosity that's killing you, 
killing you as a family. This isn't, remember, he's writing this to a we, not to a you. So when it says you, it means y'all. Okay? And so that's what he's saying. Like, y'all live according to the Spirit. And for some of us here, um, you know, there are some patterns and there are some things in us that just won't die. That just won't die. We put on button-up shirts and we come to church on Sunday, but there's still things in us that just won't die. That just keep coming up. And the question I have for all of us, are we really experiencing the freedom that Christ has given us? This freedom, this is all Exodus language, okay? That Christ has given us as he's rescued us. There might be patterns of cynicism or patterns of performance or patterns of like deep rage in your life. Maybe there's some addictive patterns in your life, sexual or, or substance, And you think to yourself, I will never break this. Paul says the Spirit of God can break it. Can literally promises the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead can break these patterns. I think the third thing, and like I said before, I can't cover everything in this chapter, but The Spirit also gives us words to pray. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Anybody feel weak? (laughs) Very honest people in the room. (laughs) The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And I think, if I could be really honest, I think one of the biggest patterns for me that needed to change in my life was the ability to have an accessible amount of stillness in my life to allow the spirit to unearth things that had to be unearthed. The deeper stuff. You know, the hurts, the deep disappointments, the unattained dreams, the longings in our lives, the rich joys in our lives. Those moments where you just, you just, all you have is a sigh. We don't know what to say. We don't want to know what to pray for. We don't know how to pray. The Spirit gives us words for that. The Spirit shows up in our lack of words and lack of thought. And then the final part of this chapter is really beautiful because Paul asks just a bunch of questions. He starts off with this one. What then shall we say in response to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul has a way of zooming out (laughs) on their present struggles And saying, you're going to be fine. God has got you. Not only that, like your, your present struggles are present and they're very, very much real. But God wants you to take a step back and see the arc of what he's doing. Now let's just talk about our individual selves for a minute. Uh, Maybe today you need a bit more curiosity and a bit more uh, courage to reopen yourself to the mystery of all of this. Maybe throughout your life and you've, uh, you know, we talk about the first half of life and the second half of life. Uh, It's been a while since I've shared this, but... um, Ronald Rollheiser talks about there's two, two basic chapters to life. The first half of life is you getting your life together. And you're building your career, you're building your family, you're getting your education, you're doing the things, you're bringing your whole life together. You're working really hard for that. And then there's the second half of life, which Ronald Rollheiser says is learning how to give your life away. Now, we can get to the second half of life and not really want to engage in giving our life away and then decide to restart building our life again. And this is, turns out to be a disaster. But a lot of times in life, what we're typically faced with is a lot of accomplishment, achievement, and that trickles its way into church life which means that we don't leave room for a lot of curiosity and courage to experience what God wants to do in us. And we show up on a Sunday and we go, you know what, I haven't been to church in a bit. I'm going to come and um, then I'm going to go about my life. But I want us to ask the question, what would it look like to be curious and courageous about what the Spirit wants to do in us? To be curious about who Jesus is and what he has done. To be curious about how the Spirit, the presence of God works in us, the breath of God works 
in us. And imagine maybe like dry ground in this. I, you know, we've been experienced all this rain, which has been, some of you hate it, and I get it, but guys, we have no fires right now. How awesome is that, right? And everything's green, and it's just like, this is high desert, and to see growth and green in places that we've, I, to be honest with you, have never seen it. And maybe some of you like soulfully are like, I need that. Like my soul is so dry. And maybe you're, you've fallen into this trying harder mentality. Like I just got to crank out another Bible study or I got to, you know, read another book or I got to, you know, I got to go to this thing or, and you've just, some of you have like done that. You've just given up. You're like, that hasn't changed me. Some of you are holding on for that not yet, the promise of what will happen in the future because life has been so hard right now. Some of you are like, you just want to, you've heard the phrase living water. And Jesus stands up at this beautiful ceremony on the side of the, uh, Jerusalem where they had the water gate where the priests would come out and actually pour water on the altar. Jesus stood up in that crowd and he shouted, come to me all who are thirsty. Maybe you just are really thirsty. I would say that um, it's a good place to be in here because um, today is the last day of this Roman series, but we're about to spend about seven or eight weeks, and this is going to blow your mind how really, really um, exciting this is going to sound. Um, we are going to spend the summer talking about walking, right? <laughs> I mean, let that just, like, do you feel the tingles? Like... I know it's not thrilling. It's not like a summer God movie series. But all through Scripture is walking. Everywhere Jesus went, he walked. And the people walked in the desert for 40 years. Psalm 23 talks about walking to the valley of the shadow of death. Everything in Scripture is walking. And the thing is, I wonder if you and I slow down to the pace of walking, might we experience more of what God has for us? Now let's talk about this idea of a we for a second before we close. The New Testament, the main metaphor for the church is a family. The church is made up of siblings, brothers and sisters. Now, what I don't want you to do is when people come in to our church is say, hey, brother, or hey, sister, we don't need that. We're, we're, we're okay. We're, it just seems kind of weird to me. <laughs> but how we treat each other. 
how we love each other, how we seek each other out as brothers and sisters, like ruthlessly connected to each other. Now, may, that may not be your family history. It may not be that your family history is, you know, Hatfields and McCoys and we stick up for each other. You know, may not be that way. That's okay. Not that that was biblical or good, but I'm just saying, like, it may not be that you're close to your family. I'm not... I'm saying that there's this new architecture of your life that revolves around other followers of Jesus. And you don't choose your family, just like in your regular family. You don't choose them. In Romans 12, we already went through this because remember we read part of this backwards was about what to do as a family. And Paul said there's, he's, there's like over two dozen commands of how we treat each other. Of what you do and you don't do with your family. And in a family, no one is expendable. No matter what, you look out for everybody else. And it's crucial to have regular celebrations as a family. And it builds the bonds of a family to have meals together, to go through hard things together, to uh, kind of push each other, to, to, to reach out and, and intentionally bring people in. And the reason why we do this is to revisit and rehearse our new identity that God has given us. To revisit and rehearse our identity together. That's why we do it. And that's why it's so important. And so with that, we're going to come to the table. The communion table that was celebrated by Jesus with his disciples as Passover. And Passover was a huge, overarching theme of Jewish freedom, of freedom from slavery. That they are welcomed to the table of Passover to remember, and God said this all throughout Scripture, remember, remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. Remember, remember, over and over and over again. And what Jesus did was bring that even further. And the initial rescue became the final rescue through Jesus. And now we not only remember but we make ourselves available for what God is up to. And so we come to the table as a family, as brothers and sisters, expectant that God has something for our family. And it says this in the scriptures. During the meal, Jesus took the bread, broke it as part of the Passover ceremony, and he took the wine that was part of the Passover ceremony. And he said with the bread, take this and eat this. This is my body broken for you. And he did that with the wine. He said, you thought of it like this, but I'm going to teach you it like this. This is my blood spilled for you. 
And these are very understood Jewish themes that all these Jewish men around the table would have understood. And he says, drink this and eat this. This is a new covenant. This is something new I'm up to. And you're invited to be a part of it. So when you're ready, you can come. There is gluten-free in the small cups up here. Grape juice and bread. Maybe this morning it's about you being curious and courageous about the presence of God in your life. Maybe you really desperately need that. God, thank you so much for family, for a family that, that you've welcomed us into, that you've adopted us into, that we are heirs. that we are heirs with Jesus, that we are heirs with each other, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love, that you've broken any condemnation that we've experienced. And your spirit wants to do deep, deep, beautiful healing work in our lives to help us to become those flourishing, fully few human people that you've created us to be. And so we come to the table in trust in an allegiance that you are up to this, that you are faithful and you are going to do this in us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.